Well, it has occurred to me that I have spent a lot of time talking about the factors of jhana and the various approaches to it, but I haven't talked much about the technique. Have I mentioned breathing? <laughs> or loving kindness? Well, these are, of course, so there are various strategies for breath meditation. And I give breath meditation talks, and there's a little pamphlet out there with both loving kindness and breath meditation. And sometimes I forget that maybe everybody hasn't heard my version of the breath meditation. This, of course, is the Anapanasati. Put up your hand if you've heard of the Anapanasati Sutta. Anapanasati Sutta. Have you heard of this one? Anapanasati Samadhi Sutta. Okay, there's a word missing in there. Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. Anapana is breathing. And sati is mindfulness. But it's also found with another word in there, samadhi, which is the jhana. So this is the sutta on mindfulness of breath leading to samadhi. And ultimately, the sutta also fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness and fulfills the eighth factor, the sama samadhi. So samasati and samasamadhi can take you all the way to arahant. And that's one of the most complete sort of structures of the sutta. And if you look at some analysis of the sutta, you'll see that some of the four tetrads are applying to the preliminary of getting your mindfulness together, the first one, and then it goes on to samadhi, and then eventually to insight reflections on impermanence, anicca dukkha anatta. And so the, the thing is very complete, but it involves the breath. So all the way through is a little reminder, breathing in, I do such and such. Breathing out, I do such and such. So part of this is uh, getting mindfulness established with the experience of the breath and then the suggestion, the induction of some of the emotional qualities of the jhanas. So we talk about piti and pamoja and saturation, sukha, all of these things come up in the Anapanasati. But you have to... There's some discussion about how to do it, and some of the commentaries have some questions about it. Because if you just look at the sutta, it's a little bit... The Buddha probably thought it was adequate, but, you know, humans, they can turn the simplest things into complex things. He has a phrase in there, being mindful, parimukhang, upadavetva, establishing, parimukhang, around the entrance. Mukhang is also the literal word for a doorway, an entrance, and your mouth. And it's not that far off of the English uh, shut your trap, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. Uh, 
the mouth is the entrance to the body, the mouth and the nose are entrances. This is a very important point. Pay close attention. The Buddha describes mindfulness, sati, as a gatekeeper, a sentry on a walled city, and everybody that comes in or out of that city goes through that gate. This is a critical mental faculty. How do you train it? You train it by watching an entrance. What is the entrance that you watch? You watch the nasal cavity, the nose, during breath meditation. All the breath passes through the parimukkhang, around the entrance, that is the nose, the nasal cavity, the nose entrance. All the air that comes in comes through that. All the air that goes out goes through that. You pay attention to that point as air passes in and air passes out. This trains your capacity to pay attention. And this is handed over to mindfulness to filter improper information about the nature of the world as it enters the mind through the entrance of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. The gatekeeper filters out any unwanted misinformation and disinformation about the world and welcomes in two messengers about the world, samatha and vipassana, serenity and insight, which always have the same message about the world. It is anicca, it is dukkha, it is anatta, it is impermanent, it is unsatisfactory, and it is devoid of substance. How do you train the mindfulness to filter these things? By training it with breath meditation. So these two similes overlap, support, and interact with themselves. And this is the basic training of the mind. So that's why this parimukhang, this entrance, is revealed in the gatekeeper simile as the entrance to the body through the nose. That's where the breath enters and leaves. And so establishing satima, mindfulness, at the parimukhang around pari, which is the same word in, um, I guess, uh, Latin, the perimeter, P-E-R-I, peri, around. And in Pali, pari, P-A-R-I. When monks, before they're to go on an alms round, there's a training rule, train yourself to put your robes on pari mandalam. You've heard this word mandala, mandala is a symmetrical figure and pari is around. So put your robes around you neatly and evenly, pari. And this pari mukhang is around the entrance where the breath is. Some uh, want to be obscure and they translate it as in front of, to the fore. 
establishing your mindfulness with the breath instead of parimukhang around the entrance to the fore or to the front. It's kind of interpreting the thing as the face or in front of you or as the main thing. So this is where we, you know, to the fore, about the breath, because obviously you have to pay, why does he keep repeating knowing a long breath, knowing a short breath? Knowing these things, being aware of that, means that you have to be aware of the contact of breath, of the air with you. So one way or the other, you have to have full attention on the experience of the contact of air with your body and it just makes sense that it's somewhere where it enters your body would be the place which is the nose or the mouth and it's almost always given as the nose sometimes in the commentaries are given as the upper lip the exhalation can be felt on the upper lip but then not everybody can feel it and not everybody can feel it in their nose either some people have no sensitivity in their nose some people can't breathe through their nose they're called mouth breathers. <laughs> now, if you've been a boxer or something like that, you might be a mouth breather. If you got a cold or something like that, you might be a mouth breather. I don't think it matters. It's just a matter of the feeling of air, a portable object of meditation. The breath goes with you everywhere. And there's the kind of Vipassana school, uh, famously established with the Mahasi Sayadaw sort of uh, techniques of watching the rise and fall of the abdomen. And that is very different than the whole commentarial tradition, which has nothing to do with the movement of the abdomen. And in fact, there's warnings in the commentaries. So there, the thing is, that somebody who's trying to do this, a young monk, comes to the teacher and says, well, where do I pay attention? Where do I keep my attention for this breath? And then they say, well, don't follow the breath into the body and then back out of the body. That is not what is meant. Because if you follow and move your mind inside your body, so the breath starts here, goes down to here, and ends in the rise of the abdomen and then back up, uh, that's a moving you're moving your mind around and that's contrary to what the samadhi element is to use the object to steady your mind. Now this technique of rise and fall of the abdomen is actually designed specifically so you are not going into samadhi. You're not going into it. It's a moving object. This is, I, I was very curious but I had to read all these different texts and explanations back and forth there's the Satipatthana Wars, you know, this... There is a book in... I found it in the Wat Nana Chat library called the Satipatthana Wars. <laughs> There's schools around this. Anyway, this rise and fall is very deliberately a strategy. You won't find any description of that at all in the suttas or in the commentaries until uh, the time of, say, Mahasi, this idea of rise and fall, because it is deliberately to become aware of change, constant change. Rather than the 
point of the samadhi is not to be aware of constant change. It is to allow the mind to come to stillness. And it is to stay on one point. Now, there's a couple of similes given by the Buddha as well. Now, this is from the suttas. And it seems to me to make it perfectly clear where your attention is to be in, in relationship to the breath. And the sutta, the, the simile is, as a turner or his apprentice knows when making a long stroke, he knows, is aware he's making a long stroke. When he makes a short stroke, he is aware making a short stroke. And this makes no sense if you don't know what a turner is and who is this apprentice anyway. <laughs> so I mentioned this simile of when the Buddha wants to say either an experienced meditator or one who is learning it. Both, both an experienced person and a person who is learning it does this the same way. So that's what is meant when, as a turner or his apprentice. You apply it to if you're learning this or whether you've done it a long time. You still use the same technique. So it took me a while to understand. I, I imagined a turner, uh, and by the way, a turner is uh, some sort of 19th century translation of what is really meant is to do with spindling. You know, uh, this is a woodworking technique. When I read this, I kind of had the impression that it was, I imagined it was a, a pottery maker, you know, on a turning pottery or something like that, turning it on a wheel or something. But really, it's a lathe worker. So, now I don't know, everybody may not be familiar with lathes. I learned this in grade eight. We had to go into shop and make a candlestick holder. I think my father still has my candlestick holder out of wood, and you put a block of wood with a pin on each side, and it's square, like the legs of that table over there, or the legs of your chair, they're square. But then, how did they make this? This is made by a turner. And by the way, this is made in India. And I, I, it might have been made in the same way they did it at that time, and it took me a long time to figure out, well, when a turner is making a long turn, he knows, or a short turn. Well, it took me the longest time to figure this out. I blundered into, I finally figured out it was a lathe maker. <laughs> now, lathe work is very interesting because you, where is your attention? I want to make, in fact, a YouTube video of lathe working to show what is meant, and also what a lathe craftsperson used at the time, because they use a, a bow, actually, to turn the thing. There are no machines. So when, in our day and age, the lathe is actually a machine, and all you have to do is hold the chisel. You just hold it steady like that, and chisel cuts in, and as it spins, you can move it along and make patterns and make you know, make it narrower in some parts and all kinds of things. But you don't have to pay attention to the circling. You're not the one who generates the circle. Finally, I was in Sri Lanka, 
And before I came back, I wanted to get a little table with what's called a moonstone on it. And we went into a furniture shop. And by the way, that's the table downstairs where I have tea. I set my tea things on it. Look at it. It's a carved table. We went into a little woodworking shop, and they were sitting on the floor with this apparatus, just like the time of the Buddha. And it was a bow with a string on it, just like a bow and arrow, you know, the bow. And the end of the lathe went, the little string was hooked around the lathe. And when you moved this with your right hand, it spun the lathe. Now, here you have the perfect, now you understand, this is the breath. It's long, he's doing long, and sometimes he does short. You know, a short turn. Sometimes he does a long turn because it spins many times on a single pull or a push. It spins in one direction or the other. But where does he keep his attention? Does he watch his hand over here? No. He keeps his attention on his chisel, which is in the other hand. And by the way, it's not only his other hand, but it's between his toes. So he's barefoot sitting on the floor, and the chisel is held in his left hand and through his, between his big toe and his second toe. And his other hand is working the lathe, sometimes long, sometimes short. But where is his attention? It has to be on the point where the chisel touches the block of wood. He cannot look away from that. Now, this is the simile the Buddha gives. And, of course, if you don't know what a lathe work, what, what he means by this, this Pali word, which is translated as turner, finally you figure out it's a lathe worker. But if you don't know about this bow thing that they use, then it doesn't mean much to you. So it's only when you get the full simile, the full picture, that you now can put it all together. You can see where your attention is. It's at the still point while everything is in motion, it remains on the still point of contact, right? In the midst of this. But you're aware of the whole process. You're aware of the length. A long breath, a long exhalation, a long inhalation. A short exhalation, a short inhalation. A long exhalation, a short inhalation, whatever. That's the first instructions, to be aware, long or short, while your attention is at parimukhang, around the place where the air contacts the entrance. So this is pretty good. I find this pretty convincing about where your attention is supposed to be. The other simile is, uh, is a... Is a um, carpenter sawing a piece of wood and the saws they used are similar to the ones we have now the carpenter actually uh, carpenters have uh, similar tools then as they do now there's a carpenter who is quite a keen dhamma student i think his name is pancha kanga which means five tools <laughs> and they even name off the five tools there's a there's a measurement thing, and there's a, there's a saw, and there's a hammer. And one of the things that I, blew me away was that they had an ink line 
which is equivalent to a chalk line. We use the chalk line all the time, and this is how you get a long line. You hook one end of the chalk line on, and you hold it there, and then you snap it, and it makes an instant line across a large surface. To this day, they're using the chalk line. They use kind of a die or something in the line in the 5th century BC. The same tools, the saw, the hammer, chisel, etc. So he gives an example of the carpenter sawing as well. Now, you should all try sawing because this is the breath here. But where does the carpenter keep his attention? He doesn't watch his hand go up and down like that. Sometimes you will get people who have never sawed anything and they, no, don't look at the handle. Look at the place where the teeth cross the point of wood. Your eye is just on that. And sometimes you'll do a short, especially when you're just starting to make the cut. You know, anybody that does this in a practical, now we have electric tools, so the art is being lost of the handsaw, but I've done enough of this stuff. So when you first start, it's actually very short strokes in order to get the cut started. And then as it started, then longer strokes. And you're really controlling the length of the stroke, but your attention is not on that. It's on the single point where it meets the wood. So in both similes, you can see what is meant. The mind stays still. It doesn't pay attention to the motion thing. It pays attention it keeps its eye on where the contact is made. The words, there is a long breath and a short breath, does not mean you deliberately make a long breath or a short breath. There's no indication of control of the length of the breath. It just means that sometimes you take a long breath, sometimes you take a short breath. And he's just encouraging you to be aware of that. It's rounding up your mind. It's bringing it in off the range. And he's giving you a fairly easy thing to start with. All you got to know is, was that a long breath or a short breath? And you can drift a little bit in the midst of it and still know whether it was long or short. It's not a 100% demand on your attention. It's about a 30% demand on your attention. Then, if you want to up your demand on your attention, you are to be fully cognizant of the contact where the air, wherever it enters, whether it's entering through the nose, through the mouth, somewhere inside your nasal cavity. You are to experience the entire body. Now, here we go again. The entire, sometimes it's translated as your entire physical body, but the commentaries all give it as the entire duration of the breath. The body, meaning the breath body. And the Buddha specifically says in the suttas sometimes, there is a body within the body, and that is the breath body. So that's how they talked about it. It's like a body of literature, the body of poetry, the body of Shakespeare's work. We use it as well, body. Kaya is the body of the breath. 
There is a body in the body, and which I say is the breath body. This is the words of the Buddha, not commentary, the words of the Buddha in another sutta. And experiencing the entire or the whole body I breathe in, experiencing the entire body I breathe out. Now, you could shift your attention to your whole body breathing in, breathing out, but I find that that stretches things. Suddenly you're paying attention to your whole body. Why? What's, where did the breath thing go? Uh, where did the simile of the... Is the carpenter suddenly paying attention to his whole body? Or is his attention on that point during the entire in and out breath without wavering? Now you're not knowing whether it's a short breath or a long breath. Now your awareness is there the entire time. Now this is an, a shift of demand on your attention. Your attention is not to wander whatsoever from this point of contact. Now, in, in the suttas, the Buddha does not say the nostrils. He does not say the upper lip. He does not say the lips. He just says parimukhaṃ, around the entrance, or at the entrance, around the entrance. So the idea that it's simply the nostril, you know, the edge of the nostrils or the upper lip or anything is purely commentary. There is no actually, you don't see this in the suttas at all. And, but you do in a very early commentary called the Vimuti Maga, 500 years before the Visuddhi Maga, which is what everybody quotes out there, and you'll find Theravada monks who are teaching this stuff to this day will be quoting the Visuddhimagga on breath meditation. But where does the Visuddhimagga commentary come from? It's modeled on a previous commentary 500 years earlier called the Vimuttimagga, the path of freedom. The Visuddhi means the path of purification, and the earlier one is the path of freedom, Vimuti. In there, you will see, obviously, somebody has borrowed and padded the essay. They have thickened it up and added things to it. But I think they've also wandered off from it. It's not been improved, it's actually been made more obscure. In the Vimuti Maga, you see this very clear experience that one breathes in, experiencing cool inhalation, etc., and that the, the success in this is that the inside the nose, you experience this inside the nose, and as soon as you get this airy sensation, now, which is translated as nimitta, the mind has picked up the characteristic as translated from an initial physical sensation, and now it has become a mental impression. So the nimitta in this case is that the mind has 
formed an after effect of it, an afterglow of it's a it's a mind-made impression of what is at first a physical experience. And you might find this with sawing, you know, that if you do it an hour or something like this, it turns into something else after a while. It's like um, it's the after impression of a kiss. You get a kiss on the cheek and then that physical sensation. And then there's the mind picks up the sensation and there's an after impression of it. If you do anything long enough, if you sit a long time, when you get up, you've kind of, you've got an impression of things. And you even get out of a bathtub and then for a while you still feel the after effects of that. So this is the after impression of this. So this is the cool air is forming an impression of coolness and airiness. And that's what's important. So it's air element meditation is really the breath meditation is air element meditation. And they make it very specific and very clear in the Vimuti Maga that this is the nimitta, the impression, the mind-made success, the mark of success that you have paid attention to the breath long enough is that the airy quality, the quality of the air element, you have absorbed that and you feel, guess what? Airy. <laughs> By the time you get to the Visuddhimagga, 500 years later, after you pay attention to the breath, you see a light and you feel like a flashlight in your head or something like that. I don't know what you feel like, but what's that got to do with the air? So it makes much more sense to me, as I traced it back to earlier commentaries, all right, the after impression of air is air. There's some confusion. Please read my essay called The Mystery of the Breath, Nimitta, Floating in Cyberspace. You all know what cyberspace is. This is a thousand years from now when they're listening to this talk. Somebody's going to have to figure out, what the, what is cyberspace? Is that a truck or something like that? No. No, it's the after effect on your mind of something that is nowhere in space, but <laughs> cyberspace, nimitta. What, what are we talking about here? Almost the same thing, actually. <laughs> so anyway, up there is an essay on this, and I explain carefully how some warnings in the Vimuti Maga about distractions of the mind things that will happen when you're trying to pay attention to the breath, twinklings, like the sand of gold, twinklings, big glowing lights, misty moon stuff will appear. Do not pay attention. That fulfills overturning, they say. That fulfills overturning. Later on, in the Vasudhimaga, that is understood to be the sign of success. Some sort of twinkling or something. But they can't really make sense of it because the vague explanations of like something misty and light and twinkling and this and that, it's a whole bunch of different things. It's very hard to understand. Well, what, what are you talking about? 
And then there is also the other sign that they say is a sign is the kind of a, a pressure on your nose, like a stick or something is being pressed against it. So they have a physical contact sign, and then this kind of mysterious flickering inner lights and so forth, which most of you see if you close your eyes, and that's a very common experience. Is to, there's all kinds of little light glows and stuff. Those are not to be paid attention to. You can see that the confusion has happened over 500 years. They have gotten more and more confused. And one of the things they say in there is that it's very, very, very hard to do this, to get the jhana on the breath meditation. It's really almost nobody does. And they now are preoccupied with colors called casinas. And they say, this is the thing to do, is watch the color. It's very hard to even find a specific reference to color casinas in the entire suttas. But the breath meditation is throughout the suttas. So a thousand years later, things have changed. So if you go to 500 years later, you will see they're not preoccupied with the color casinos. They're saying, here's the breath meditation, and it's fairly simple. Pick up the contact of air at the nose or in the, in the nasal cavity, and then the sign, the perfection of this, the perfection of this is that it will become that your whole head feels like it's full of air. So your head feels like it's cool and airy, and then little phrase, this is perfection. And then your whole body also can feel light, cool, and airy. The whole body can be pervaded by this, but all it really matters is that your head is pervaded by this air, this cool air. So now you understand what's going on. What's the purpose of this uh, breath meditation? The primary purpose? To reduce excessive discursive activity. To stop thinking all the time. Notice there's nothing to think about. One of the things they say, why, why air meditation? Why, why the breath? It's because it has neither shape nor color. That's why. There's nothing to talk about. You can't see it. You can only feel it. Unlike the other topics, like fire casinas, earth casina, water casina, the four color casinas are all visual. This has no visual element to it, no proportions, etc. So it's very abstract right from the start. There's no size, shape, imperfections in it in that way. It's just something you feel the air. This also is why I don't think light has very much to do with the nimitta of breath. Because if light is the nimitta, why don't you look at a light to get the nimitta? Then they described candle meditation. And what is the nimitta? Light, you know. So why bother with the breath? If you want light meditation, go stare at a candle.
So the breath is because it has no visual element to it. So lights, etc., are not the point. The point is actually a physical experience of cool light, not that kind of light, <laughs> buoyancy, coolness, airiness, buoyancy, and guess what it is very close to is both PT, joy, and sukha, pleasure of the body. When you have concentration like that, samadhi, the problems of the body recede into the background and pleasure in the body becomes apparent. By the way, so here's how they separate, they're brilliant, absolutely brilliant, how they separate, what is the joy, what's the difference between joy, piti, and sukha? Joy of the mind, the emotion of joy, and the pleasure that sweeps through the body, kind of as a result of the joy. Like, how do you distinguish between these two things? They're just brilliant, these guys. They say a man is walking in the desert, scorched by the sun, very, very thirsty. And he, he knows or he's heard there's an oasis. And this must be a fairly common experience for traders going in northern India, going into these areas. They must have had to cross deserts and oases. By the way, Buddhism went up into uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran, Persia, etc. So they were in desert areas and the trade routes went into the desert areas as well. So they were familiar with this and the idea of oasis in the middle. So the, the man is just very dehydrated and in the distance he sees a little island of trees, an oasis. And he thinks right away, there is probably water there. And right away, he gets what? Anticipatory joy. I'm going to get something to drink. I'm going to be able to bathe. He's not in the oasis. He's not even confirmed that there is water there. But already he's anticipating it. His body is dehydrated, hot, dusty, uncomfortable, and yet he hasn't had any water, but his mind is already experiencing joy. As he walks in, he sees a man walking towards him, dripping water, who has obviously just come out of a good bath in a pond. A beautiful oasis pond. Then the man's PT increases, but he is still covered with dust and dehydrated. His body has not touched the water. So you now see PT is purely joy of the mind. The body has not entered. Now, now he goes into the pond and he drinks the water, and he lays around in the water and bathes in the water and cools himself, and that's sukha. Once he actually enters the water, immerses his body, that's sukha. 
And so you can see the difference between this. Some people make a mistake. They do not quite get the simile, and so they describe PT as anticipatory joy. Like you're anticipating jhana or something like that. No. You missed the point of the story. <laughs> the point is to try to separate out piti from sukha. And they had to do it that way to show you the difference between mental joy and physical pleasure. But the joy in the jhana is not anticipatory joy of the jhana. It's the joy of the jhana. <laughs> It was just a story. <laughs> How many times people, they don't handle stories very well. Anyway, so it's a brilliant demonstration of how to separate body and mind. It doesn't really matter. It is very difficult to separate out your experience of joy and your body feelings. So you have this PT and Sukha, and the Sukha is full immersion of the body. Now, so... By the way, at this point, you are still asked to be aware of your breathing and you are to know that you have sukha. You're to both know that you have joy of the mind, some version of piti, pamoja, pasadi. These are all beautiful mind states. And Sukha. Sukha, sukha is a pleasure of the body, the entire body, the entire physical body. So now we're back to something like this idea that experiencing the entire body I breathe in, experiencing the entire body I breathe out. Some people think that that is experiencing the physical body blankly while I breathe in. I, I just find it just goes off the simile, you stay with the experience of the contact of air, the experience of the whole body of air. But we're going to meet, these two schools are going to meet together when we suddenly become aware that our entire body is flooded with pleasure. But we're still keeping with the airy contact of the breath. You can call it the breath or you can call it the air. It doesn't matter. What's important is that it's air. You have used it as a suggestive means to accomplish something. You're, you're not literalizing this experience. You're using it to get somewhere. You're going to get into this special state of light, light uh, buoyancy. English. Light and light. Not that light. This light. The scale. The weight scale light. So this is all a trick. You're just tricking your mind. You don't care really about your breath at all. You don't care about air at all. You just want the good stuff. It's a trick of the mind. It's like piano teachers do this all the time. They're going to make you... Now you're floating. You're floating. C major. Now... It changes to B minor. Oh, you're so sad, aren't you now? Oh, yes, yes. Just, it, it's not the piano keys or any of that stuff. What does it feel like? What's, what's the feeling of this? So this is a poetic... They're just 
giving you tools to get into this supernormal state. So, there are actually strange modern versions of this, which are out there in popular culture as well. Uh, sometimes as songs by hippies. Um, here is a unconscious commentary on a modern version of what is we're getting at here. Now this is, of course, a song, but I won't sing it. It may sound like I'm singing it, but I'm not. I'm going up the country. Baby, don't you want to go? I'm going up the country. Baby, don't you want to go? I'm going to some place where I've never been before. Now, <laughs> let me explain. <laughs> I'm going up the country. Up, not down the country. Up the country. This is description of where you're going with Jonathan. Do you want to come? Or do you want to stay home? Huh? We're going someplace where we haven't been before. And baby means the apprentice. So whether you're familiar or whether you're apprentice, baby, do you want to go? Notice that they repeat it twice. The encouragement is because there is a requirement for some commitment and faith. You're stepping into the unknown. I have to ask you twice. I'm going up the country. Do you want to go? I have to ask you again. I'm going up the country. Do you want to go? We're going someplace where we've never been before. I'm going, I'm going where the water tastes like wine. I'm going, I'm going where the water tastes like wine. We can jump in the river, stay drunk all the time. <laughs> this is a simile. <laughs> the water isn't really wine and it won't make you drunk, but it feels so good that it's, you don't need to get drunk anymore. Why do people get drunk? They really want to go up the country and get away. <laughs> go someplace away from things, right? This is, that, this is the metaphor. By the way, this is throughout all kinds of religions. They use it. We're going to cross over the river to the land of milk and honey where we won't have to We'll just sit around and drink milk and, and the sweetness of honey and milk. Yes. Uh, this happens to be wine. The wine of truth, perhaps. The wine of peace. Whatever. So you can jump in the river. Stay drunk all the time. <laughs> this is Jana, the possibility. And why? Why is he going there? I'm going to leave this city I've got to get away. I'm going to leave this city. I've got to get away. All this fussing and fighting, you know, I just can't stay. So, what is that? What is the city? The five hindrances, isn't it? All this fussing and fighting. I just can't stay there. So this is just some unconscious poet. <laughs> feeling. He wants to go there. He just doesn't know how. 
but he's got some nice poetic images. He has a feeling that there could be something in the city, which is just, he could even be in the country in the city. There's a lot of fussing and fighting. There's just internal fussing and fighting. There's external fussing and fighting. There's the hindrances, the harassments of the mind. And one wants to go away. And one is not sure where that, where, how, where are you, how, where is it? It's just, it's certainly not here anyway. That's something you know. And so there's a faith element to this as well. Do you want to go? Do you want to go? You haven't been there before. Do you want to go? So the yearning, this is yearning. And you see it expressed in all kinds of poetry. You see it expressed in all kinds of religious language. And it's expressed in these beautiful, all kinds of beautiful different ways. Freedom, etc. Underlying it all is just spiritual yearnings. And maybe that person who writes things like this is more inclined in that way. They're poet types and so forth. They may not get there. Quite often they, they end up in the wine bottle instead of in what the wine bottle represents, in the truth or in the beauty and the peace, they, they suffer. And that's why they yearn for freedom. But they don't know how to get it. Because how to get it is a fine art as well. So these things left behind are the messages, all these little things. I'm exploring texts from the 5th century. What? What is that man doing all day long, reading seven different texts in Pali? What is that man wasting his time with? There are treasures left behind. I think there's even a book called The Gifts He Left Behind. So there are songs and poems and chants and instructions. You notice the Buddha uses a number of means, poetic means. So the, the gatas are like little songs, actually. They rhyme and all kinds of stuff. So he does it in, sometimes in that language, and then sometimes he speaks in a very analytical language. He tries to talk to both sides of your brain. So some people are very dominantly analytical. Some people are, need beautiful images, poetry as well. So, you know, he talks about the city of Nibbana and so forth. These are poetic, spiritual kind of thing. And then sometimes he's very analytical. So he's offering out the opportunity in any, any form that anybody can use. And some of these things are little things that, just like little blues songs, you'll find these little chants floating around again and again in your head. Some of the monks raised in Buddhist cultures, these chants are going on in their head, and they're, they've got the same beauty to them as the best you know, lyrics from songs that you like to have processing in your mind, and sometimes lines from poetry as well. And so we have to use any means we can, but we have to be a little bit uh, intelligent and careful with the similes left behind and what exactly is meant. And that actually means that you have to actually research, like how did they... What is a turner? <laughs>
Also, they refer to spinning cotton, like the experience of breath coming in and out of the nose is like the feeling of spinning cotton. But then you got to, you should see how they spin cotton. It's not modern. The, the thing they spin on is not modern. It's very primitive. And you should see, there's a, some videos of a group of women, about eight or ten of them, in a group in maybe Nepal or someplace, and they're spinning together. They're sitting on the ground, and it's very primitive. It's just little wind-up kind of stuff. And they have special songs that they all sing while they spin. They're spinning songs. And it's pulled. You see how the cotton is pulled out through your thumb and your first finger. It's being pulled continuously. And that's one of the descriptions of the breath going in and out of the nose is that cotton is being pulled out. And if you do that for a while, if you have cotton pulled through your fingers for a while, it will no longer feel like something moving through there. It'll turn from something, at first it feels like cotton being pulled. Eventually, it feels like you're just kind of holding a soft, cottony ball between your hands, even though it's streaming through there. It's turned from a a frictional motion to a static feeling. And this is purely what the mind does. And that is the image they use for the breath. The breath is softly cool, being pulled through like cotton, spinning cotton. And you have to see that they hold it like this. It streams through from the thumb and the forefinger until it goes from emotion feeling to a static image. It transforms, and this is just a perceptual shift in the mind. The mind gets tired of registering motion, and it goes to static. And this is the transformation of the mind from paying attention to activity to it starts to become still. It goes from motion to stillness. And notice the process of the deepening of the jhanas is from the joy, more energized kind of thing. The similes go from motion to the upwelling of the spring to the lotus hanging motionless in still water to the man disappearing under a white sheet. So you go from liquid to this kind of airy, non, the vanishing of the body and the stilling, even the vanishing of joy and the, and the vanishing of sukha in the body. So you see this process from dynamic to absolute stillness. And so the deepest jhana is absolute motionless stillness. The emotion is equanimity. And in the body, sukha, pleasure has gone. Pain has gone. Everything is gone. The body is hardly there at all. So, uh, you know, to do this, you need to review your similes and use them as mystical guides 
into this. That's the purpose of them. They're kind of like songs to find your way in. Yeah. Paintings, poems, songs to find your way in. Okay, I apologize for going up the country. <laughs> but I thought I would show you that it's out there in hidden forms. Now you are the cognoscenti, the illuminati. You know, you hear about them. Now you know who they are. You. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll leave that for your reflection tonight.